0: So, Genesis 2, 25 through 3, 24. Let's read that together. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. You are a good and gracious God. Thank You for relating this story to us to show us, Lord, that You have been about relationships and redeeming and restoring man from the very beginning. Lord, we offer up this Word to You today as as just praise and glory and worship to You. Lord, would You, through Your Holy Spirit, inhabit this Word. Cause it. To do all that you would among us today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Bless your people today, we pray. Amen. I once knew a family who taught their children, like from a really, really young age, like two years old, as soon as their kids started talking. and, And, you know, kids start to exaggerate the truth or they start realizing that. What they did is wrong, and so they start coming up with something that might be, well, a lie as to what actually happened. So this mom, she taught her kids that when they lied, she always knew it because their forehead glowed. You know, it's like a little light, just kind of glowed. And she taught them this, and she told them this all the time, and time after time, and somehow mom always knew, so it must be true. So now by the time they're three and four, mom would ask them, Hey, did you do so, did you do this? Nope, sure didn't. Nope. Tommy did it, you know. And this worked till they were like seven years old. And then one day, the oldest brother caught his other brother telling a lie. Hey, his forehead isn't glowing. Huh. My point is, our story today is a little bit like that. A little bit like this child who figures out he's lying. And to hide the lies, to hide the things that he's done wrong, he tries to cover himself. And it really just doesn't work. It just made it all the more clear that what was done was wrong. In our story today, what I'd like for us to walk away with is this knowledge that our God is a God of relationship. That God created man to be in relationship, first with God and then with one another. But something happened, and that is sin. That is, God gave a commandment to man, and man broke that commandment. And it caused him to hide. It caused shame and guilt. And that shame and guilt sought to be covered and then separated God and man. It caused man to hide from God. I hope today to show you that sin has consequences. But that we serve a God who not only is a judge of sin, but also a God of love who seeks to restore and bring back into right relationship His creation. That is, you and I. In our passage, we see the fall of of man from that perfect state. But for us to to get to the point of understanding that we were created in a relationship, we've got to drop back just a little bit. Obviously not too far, because we're only in chapter 3 of the beginning of the whole Bible. So, let's take a look real quick at chapter 1, verse 26. And I hope to prove to you here that God created man to be in relationship. Chapter one, verse 26, says, "Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and, all the, and of all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." Now you might be thinking, how do you get relationship out of that? Well, he starts off by saying, let us make man in our image. This is a Trinitarian reference. This is God. The Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit. In relationship. That is how the Trinity operates. In a perfect, loving relationship. Perfectly submitted. The Son and Spirit to the Father. The Trinity. That's the model. And he says, let us make man in our image. That is, in a loving relationship with us and with one another. Even as we are in a loving relationship, we want man, our creation, to be the same way. Made in our image. Perfectly submitted to God the Father. That's how we're created. From the very beginning, We can go on and look at, for instance, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And in verse 2, 7, and 8, again, we see this intimacy that's formed around even the beginning of man. There he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Think of that for a second. That word formed is really important here. That is very much um, art language. It's pottery language. It's forming and shaping like clay. It's a theme that runs often through the Bible. You'll see Isaiah pick it up. And then you'll see Paul pick it up. In Romans, this idea of, of things that God forms and shapes with purpose. His purpose. He forms them in the way that He has designed. And He has designed man to be in a relationship Now think of this. I mean, it's a very hands-on sort of of picture you get there. God is very intimate in His design of man. It's not per chance. He doesn't just speak man into being. Man is formed and shaped, created. And then it's more. He gives this language of breathing life into man's nostrils, into Adam's nostrils. Now I think of that. When I think of that, did you all do have any of you learned CPR, gone through CPR classes? Do you remember children, like what you do for l- infants and, and little children? You know, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a one-finger thing, but how does the breathing work? You have to put it over their whole face, over their nose, and over their mouth. It's very, think of this, it's very close, it's very intimate. God puts his mouth over man's Mouth and nose. That's sort of this imagery that's given and He breathes life into it. breathes life into what was dirt. And it becomes a living being. God shapes Him and forms and breathes life into Him. Now, even more, think of this word. If we were to look at at the Hebrew text out of here, this word um, uh, for breath, the breath of life, Breath can be breath, it can be wind, it can be spirit. It's The same word for all three. So think of this, what's captured in this word is that man, God reaches in and breathes life. He breathes the spirit into man. No other creature in the creation has the breath of God breathed into him. Has the spirit breathed into him. Man is unique in that. And not only is he unique in that, but it is a very intimate thing to think that he is created and lives because the Spirit has been breathed into him by the living God. Is that a God who would know you intimately? Is that a God who took time to understand who you were and what you were completely? Yes. This is a God who's in relationship with man. And it continues when you get to 2, 16 and 17. Who receives the commands? God speaks directly to Adam. He speaks directly to him. Like God and Adam before one another. God is speaking to him. He gives him the command. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying to him, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God speaks very openly and very commonly to Adam. He gives him his commands. We can go farther and say in verses 2, 24, and 25, God sees that man um, has no partner. See, we said that God designed man to be in a relationship with first God and then with one another. So God has put him in the garden and said, hey, I'm giving you dominion over all the earth and I want you to name all of the animals. I delight in you, Adam. I want to see what you call things in the creation. I delight in you. Name everything. Give it a name. Whatever you want. And so Adam goes forth and he's naming all these different things. And by the time he's done, what he hasn't named is one of him something that looks like Him and species that are like Him. Someone that is, someone He can be in relationship with. And so God recognizes this and He puts Adam to sleep and He pulls a rib out of Adam and He makes, it builds, a woman. And it says... And the man said, when God presents the woman to him, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh it's harder to get much tighter in a relationship than making two people into one flesh. That's a lot of time together. That's a lot of work together. That's really getting to know one another intimately. God designed us to be in intimate relationship. First with God, and then with one another. The result of these relationships in in this first two chapters before sin enters the world, is that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Why is that important? Because we're going to see just in a few verses later that Moses, the writer of this book, uses it as a, as a contrast to what is to come when sin enters the world. But initially, we were designed to stand before God and one another naked and unashamed. In other words, transparent before one another. It's an odd thought for us today, but at the time, really at the time, it wouldn't have been. There was no concept of being anything but transparent with one another. To be for one another absolutely and completely completely. There wasn't anything to hide. There was no rivalry. There was no need to rule over. It was just perfect relationship with God and one another. Yet, as you already know from our reading, this doesn't last This isn't the way the story ends as much as we'd like it to be. The perfect relationship is broken. That perfect relationship is destroyed when man goes against God's commandment. And like a tsunami hitting a city, everything is gone. Everything that was changes. And it changes for generations to come nothing would be the same the effect of sin is that it breaks the relationships that we have it breaks the relationships with God and it breaks our relationships with one another so let's take a look at how this happens let's look at chapter 3 now chapter 3 begins with now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now Temptation is an interesting thing. And the way Satan presents this, the way the serpent presents this, is to paint God in a very different light than what Adam or Eve know to be true. Think about this for a second. He says, did God actually say? It's very mocking here. It's hard to pick this up in the English. It doesn't translate cleanly, but it is a mocking sort of tone. It's a very unique uh, grammatical choice in what's made here. Um, And it is no other way to say this. It's a mocking voice. Did God actually say that you're not able to eat of any tree in the garden? Duh, how stupid would that be? Duh. But how does it paint God? God is oppressive. He doesn't want the best for you. It's immediately flipping what you know to be true to a different light. God doesn't have your best interest at heart, does he? That's what the temptation is in front of Eve at the moment. Notice he doesn't give it to Adam, who spoke directly to God. He, gets it from, he goes to Eve. Now, where did Eve get the command from? I don't know. Presumably from Adam. We don't have any record of God speaking that command to her. So, presumably she gets it from Adam. But in any case, she defends God. What does she come back with? Let's take a look. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So let's think about her response for just a moment. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. She doesn't say it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's just the tree in the midst of the garden. It's a little more vague, first off. But then she has this other piece in there. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Was that part of the command we read earlier? No. No, there's nothing about touching it that was in that command. Only don't eat of the tree. Now, how many of you with your children have said, don't touch the stove? Anybody here? Don't touch the stove. Why? Because they might get burned. Except the first time they touch the stove, it's not on, so it's not even hot. So they're like, well, that's dumb. Why can't I touch the stove? And then the next time, it's really pretty because it's a little lovely red color up there. Ooh, that's so nice. I love that color. They're not very happy because they just burn their finger. And that's what you were trying to avoid to start with. The problem is... The way you gave the instruction, wasn't very helpful. And I have to wonder, now I don't know, but where does she come up with that, don't even touch it? I don't know. I'm, I'm completely making an assumption here, but it could be that Adam, in her best interest, said, don't even touch it, just don't go near it. And we all do a lot of that when it comes to the way we teach and the way we train people, and the way we teach our kids about how to handle Scripture with the best of intent. Just don't even go near that. And there's wisdom in that. Don't misunderstand me. But I wonder, did it not get her into trouble, as we'll see in a few minutes? In any case, she responds with, no, he didn't. He said, we just couldn't eat of that one tree. Well, Satan responds back again. This time a little more directly. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. That is now direct contradiction of what God said. So the first temptation just poses something that maybe God isn't as good as he says. The second one directly contradicts what God says. You're not going to die. He doesn't even wait for a response though. He says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Oh, and here, my friends, we are at the heart of mankind because there is nothing we want more than to be our own God. Truth be told, no matter how we cut it, what we want to be is in charge. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. We don't have to want to worry about what goes on tomorrow or some other time. We want to be in charge of it. I don't want to have to trust that God's got it. No, I want to know I've got it. I want to be in control of this. I fight this every day in my own spirit. I'm sure. If you don't, I'll, well, anyway, I think we all fight it to some extent. The offer here is outrageous. You can eat of this fruit, and you can be just like God that guy who created you, you can be just like him. You can have all the knowledge and wisdom, all this creation that exists around you, you can be like God. Having all of that wisdom, all of that knowledge, all the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in a sense, is it a complete lie? No. It's not a complete lie. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. God says it himself at the end of the chapter. Now that they have the knowledge of good and evil. Now that they're like us and have the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't a complete lie. But it wasn't the truth. The whole truth. Either. It painted a part of a picture. It didn't tell of all the consequences that came with it. What he left out was, you will surely die. What he had said to them earlier was, you surely will not die. And you can tell that this has its effect because what happens next? Eve looks at the tree and it says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Hold on. God had said it's not good for food. In fact, it will kill you. Something's changed. She's bought the lie. Because now, what will kill you looks like it's good for food. So she says, she saw that the tree was good for food. That it was a delight. To the eyes, that very thing that will kill her is now a delight to her eyes and was to be desired to make one wise. And who is the one who has all the wisdom? God. In other words, it has everything it's going to take to make me like god and i want it and so what does she do so she took the fruit and ate it i have this picture in my mind you know because i'm sitting here thinking okay we just said that don't even touch it just a few seconds before no we're not supposed to touch it we're not supposed to we're not supposed to eat it yeah we're not even supposed to touch it because we're going to die so you can see here there's a fruit it looks good She reaches out to it, and like the kid who, you know, you have told not to put their finger in the socket, you know, they're just kind of going, and so she's like, ah, she touches it, and I can almost see her like, okay, I'm not dead, I touched it, and I'm not dead. Pulls the fruit, she eats it, guess what? Adam is right with her the whole time. I'm not sure what Adam was thinking here. Like he's thinking, I ain't touching that. Let's see what happens to her. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. It doesn't tell us. But she takes of the fruit and she eats it and she's not dead. And so she hands it to Adam. Adam, who received the command from God, takes the fruit and eats of it. And then their eyes are opened. It didn't happen when Eve took the fruit. Nobody's eyes got opened when Eve ate the fruit. The command was given to Adam. He was created in God's image, he was the one who was given dominion over everything. Adam takes it, eats of the fruit, and their eyes are opened. They know. When the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Friends, what happened was shame entered the world. Sin had entered the world. They had broken God's commandment. That's what sin is when we break God's commandment. They broke God's commandment. Sin entered the world. And with it came shame and guilt. And our story ever since has been how do we cover it? How do we cover that sin? How do we cover that guilt? And how do we hide from God? Our Creator. The One we were created to be in very intimate relationship with. They hide from one another. Because remember, where were they at the end of chapter 2? They had become one flesh. They stood together naked and unashamed. The result of sin is there's no longer unashamed. The result of sin is shame and guilt. And so we take it on ourselves to try and cover it. That's the condition of man. So sin has brought this shame and has brought this sin I mean this uh, shame and guilt, and they have covered themselves. Now, what happens next? Well, it says in verse eight, "And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden now this is an interesting verse again it's one of these things i feel like i'm grammaring out here today but but the word here and the way it's presented for walking in the cool of the garden that walking is done in a tense that just says this happens all the time this is the most common thing in the world for us to be doing i'm walking in the garden this is what i've always done this is what i always do i'm just walking in the garden So God is walking in the garden because that's what God does because He's a God who's in relationship with Adam and Eve. The only thing that makes anything stand out is Adam and Eve aren't there. They're not coming up and going, hey God, what's going on today? They're not anything like that. No, they're hiding from the presence of God. That word presence is going to be the whole way as we study through the Old Testament. God's presence is a big topic. And it's what we have been trying to get back to for years throughout the Old Testament. That presence of God. Crying out for God's presence to be returned and restored among man. But this first man hid from God's presence because sin had entered the world. So God does what He always does. He, He comes and says, where are you? Adam, where are you? It's the cool of the evening, the work day is done. Adam, where are you? Because God is a God of relationship. Now, don't take this the wrong way. God is also completely omniscient. It's not like he was surprised by what had gone on. Just like you as a parent at times, you know, you know your kid did this. Like, duh, I know you did this. It's like I tell my kids all the time, if I'm asking you did you do this, I guarantee I already know you did it. I'm just giving you the opportunity to fess up now. Some of them will tell you that they've learned. Some of them remember after the fact Nonetheless, the point is that God already knew what they had done. It wasn't a surprise. But God is there for a purpose because He wants to restore relationship. He wants relationship with man. Now, if you have ever dealt with that kind of thing, with anybody, you already knew they did wrong. It doesn't have to be your kids. It could be anybody. Especially if it's a family member though, and you know they've done wrong. You want them to fess up. You want it to be easy because you want to forgive them. You want this thing to be cleared up. Yeah, there's consequences. There's always consequences. But what we want is restoration of that relationship. So we give them the opportunity. Well, God gives them the opportunity. Adam, where are you? So Adam comes out of the brush and comes out of the forest. And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. How does God respond to this? He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now once again, we're going to get right back to the heart of God who is a God of justice and a God of love. You can't have the two split apart. God is both a God who, who judges right and wrong. He's perfectly holy in everything that He does. But He's also a God of love. And we're going to see this play out now. So He says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me the woman you gave me yep that is definitely the heart of man all right the woman <laughs> the woman you gave me she gave me the fruit of the tree and i ate it the first thing so what is we talked about how does how does a relationship get broken by sin okay It introduces shame. It introduces guilt. And it introduces blame. Because somebody else has got to be held accountable for this. It sure isn't me. I'm not the one going to go down. Who else can I blame? That's also our very nature as man. And so he points to the woman and says, she did it. The one you gave me. So he's both accusing God. You're the one who gave me this woman. And accusing her. See what's going on? It shifts it both ways. And so God says. Then the Lord God turned to the woman. What is this you have done? And all of these questions are not in your face kind of questions. There's, God could be really in your face with this stuff at this point if He wanted to be. But they're not. They really are, when you think of it, very gentle kinds of questioning. Always giving them a way to confess. Always giving them a way out. Not, bam, bam. He already knew what they did. So, what is this you have done? What's the woman saying? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. These are the end of the nice questions. Remember I just said God is a God of judgment and a God of love. And what we're going to see in this next, in this next section, we move into the curses, the consequences of sin. And there are consequences. Don't ever deceive yourself. Sin has consequences. And for you as believers and, and, and us, for us as believers today, don't think that sin does not have consequences. Now, our sin is forgiven. As a believer, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, my sin is forgiven. Past, present, future, gone, far as the east is from the west. I tell you this all the time because I mean it. God has completely forgiven your sin. But I'm telling you, if you go out and cheat on a spouse, if you go out and run somebody over intentionally, if you go out and take your pick of things, there are consequences for that that you will live with for years to come. The consequences of that are going to be lived out. Now, can God redeem and restore things that you've done poorly and done wrong and when you've sinned against him? Yes, absolutely can. But the point is that those curses, I mean that those those things that you've done have consequences. So, very quickly, as we roll through this section of of it, and I'm not going to read them all, but what you see is that the woman, the snake, is cursed first. It's going to crawl on his belly. Eat of the dust. The woman is going to receive the curse of child pain and childbirth. And this relationships, her relationships are destroyed by this. At one point, again, this naked and unashamed, they were two, they were one flesh. The word changes here now to saying in chapter 3, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and He shall rule over you. Now let me explain just that one word that we translate as for. Because what it can be is for or against. The word is actually toward. Your feelings shall be towards your husband. Your desire shall be towards your husband. And that's kind of a vague thing, but it carries with it this idea that it could be for, or it could be against So, you could be like in rebellion against him, or you could be trying to help him, but it doesn't, it's not going to matter because in this relationship, what's going to happen is that your husband is going to have dominion over you. He's going to rule over you. That's the curse. And I want to tell you right now, in case I don't get time later, that Jesus Christ is all about redeeming the curse. He's all about restoring relationships to what they should be. We don't have to live like that. But in our natural state, that is who we are and how our relationships will work in marriage. You'll be towards your husband and he will rule over you. And that is an iron-fisted sort of rule that's given there. Every time that word is given in that particular way, it's a warfare kind of rule it's a war it's a warlike king's rule i've come to do business not the kind of rule that i come in peace god can redeem that that's through jesus christ the last piece is the man who receives the curse now actually he doesn't receive the curse what gets cursed The man has broken God's commandment. The one who received that word, he's broken God's commandment. He doesn't get cursed. What does get cursed? The ground. The earth. And you're not going to see until after the flood where God says, no longer will I curse the ground because of man's sin. This curse will extend and that's why the The world gets flooded. God destroys His creation, the earth, as as we understood it at that time. Because the ground was cursed. The ground absorbed the responsibility for man's sin, if you will. So the ground gets cursed. Now, what does that mean for Adam? What was he supposed to have dominion over? The earth. All that stuff that was on the ground... The very place that was supposed to be His dominion, that He was supposed to rule over, now will be against Him at every turn. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on here. All these curses. But I want you to see two things before before we end here. Because God is not just about the consequences of things, He also gives them hope. And in verse 324, let's take a look at that. God does something here. Yep, sorry. 321. My apologies. 321. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now let me say that this shows that God is a caring God. He has provided for them. They've been cast out of the garden now. So he's caring for them. He's making sure they are clothed. And I believe that God can do things ex nihilo. He can create something out of nothing. But on an average given day, most animals don't give up their skin. Just like, oh yeah, here's my coat. Here, have that. No, that requires them to die. Something died to cover sin. Do you see what happened here? Man is covered. Just like he wanted to be, man is covered, but something died to make that happen. Blood was spilled to cover man's sin. That's God's goodness and gracious to man at the time. And that is a restoration of relationship at that day and that time. And you'll see right after that in chapter four, there was a right sacrifice and a wrong sacrifice. So this whole idea of sacrifice shows up pretty quick. The last thing I want to say is if you go back and look at 315, he gives us hope for today. It's our hope. It's the hope of our future It was the hope of their future. He says, as he's cursing the snake, I will put enmity between the woman, between you and the woman, and between her offspring, um, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that word bruise, the other word for that that's commonly used, you can use either one, is crush. You'll crush your head, you'll crush his heel. Or Bruce is heel, and the man, the one to come, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. One came. Who would do that? This is the promised one. And the rest of the Old Testament talks about and leads us towards a time when the one who is promised, who will crush the head, if I could have the band come up, who will crush the head of the serpent it prophesies, it looks towards this One, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the the, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the One who will bring all things back into right, into place. The One who will deliver us from our shame. The One who will deliver us from our guilt. The One who will restore right relationship with God. That's the promise in 3.15. One is coming who will do that. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. And He lived a perfect life. What Adam could not do, what Adam did not do, Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He took on Your sin, my sin, the sin of all believers. He took that sin on to Himself. Willingly. And He went to the cross to pay for that sin. That judgment, remember the curse that Adam and Eve got? Well, that curse was still there for you and I. Every one of us lives under the judgment of God if you're outside of Jesus Christ. You will face it. Or, you live under Christ and His righteousness and He took the judgment of God for you. He took the wrath of God and bore it until He was dead because you will surely die. That curse is on Adam and everyone who followed after Him. And so under Christ, we have that hope. We've broken the curse of death. Amen? And so today, if you've not chosen Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, today's the day. It's very simple. Just a short prayer. You can say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Please forgive me for breaking your laws and your commands. Would you come into my heart? Would you... Be my Lord. Would you be my Savior? Would you be the one who takes away my sin? I trust you and I'm going to follow you. It's a simple prayer. doesn't even have to be those words. But if you pray that prayer and you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you're in. Those sins are gone. It's covered. The judgment's no longer yours. And you come unto Christ in His perfect righteousness. And you can stand before God just as Adam and Eve did before the fall, naked and unashamed, transparent before God in the righteousness of Christ. Amen.